Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Monroe Live podcast. I'm your host today, Scott Hoffman. And with me, I have the pleasure of introducing Mr. Ben DeLand, Director of Electrical Hardware Engineering at GKN Automotive, which you're just down the road in Auburn Hills, right? A corporate neighbor. That's right. Just a, a mile up the road on Optike there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be on. Big fan of your <laughs> YouTube channel and what you've been doing there to get information out. Well, thanks, Ben. You're too kind. I, I look at your title and some of the stuff I've read, I think you have some good articles and stuff out there. I read them. I'm like, I look at the stuff you're responsible for in your team. And I don't know how you have the time to, to carve out, to come in and do this. So sincerely, man, we appreciate you taking the time to come in and sit down with us today. It's my pleasure. <laughs> so director of electrical hardware engineering at GKN, obviously a huge automotive player. We'll get into maybe more about GKN in a bit, but Maybe you could tell us like what, so electrical hardware within the GKN portfolio, what kind of components and items in a vehicle does that mean that you guys are responsible for? Sure. So GKN Automotive is uh, a big player starting off with side shafts. Mm -hmm. uh, in the 1950s, GKN as a parent company entered the automotive market. So GKN Automotive began innovating in side shafts and constant velocity joints for drive shafts. And then acquired a portion of uh, Getrag's business, their driveline business, and got into the all-wheel drive space. Okay. Uh, and gearbox design with, with that as well. And with those all-wheel drive components and electric drive components, mm -hmm. you need the electronics to drive them. Mm -hmm. So that's where my team comes in. Okay. Uh, so we do ECUs for our all-wheel drive products. We do inverters for our e-drive systems as well. Got it. And my team also manages the actuators and components that help drive that system. Sure. So if you sure. have low voltage motors or solenoids, harnesses, sensors, that type of thing is also sure. managed by my team. Okay. Wow. So yeah, I mean, shoot, traction inverters as we think about like EVs and electrification, that whole space, like a pretty critical and important component in terms of propelling an EV to do uh, what it does. I guess for, you know, we find that a lot of folks that watch the channel are interested in vehicles and in electrification. Um, so maybe for the uninitiated, could you maybe just kind of summarize what it is that, a, that an inverter does uh, in one of your guys' e-drive units? Yeah, great question. I think it's important that we level set on language for yeah. EVs because everyone is learning, transitioning from ICEs with yeah. combustion engines and transmissions into this totally new component. Sure. So often people refer to an e-drive system as a motor, yeah. an electric motor, yeah. but uh, actually it's three parts. Yeah. It's a traction motor, mm -hmm. it's the gearbox, and the inverter. Mm -hmm. So the responsibility of the inverter is to convert the energy from the high-voltage battery mm -hmm. into an AC waveform that is driving the traction motor and the traction motor is then creating torque and sending it to the gearbox. The gearbox is multiplying that torque and sending out to the wheels. Got it. Yeah. So, and I think I, it's funny too, inverters, like you hear it, some people, I think we even did for a while, call them inverter converters, right? Because with an e-motor or e-machine, you can have regen, right? So from the battery, you've got the DC power, you're inverting it to AC, going out to the motor, and then it's converting it. But and if I'm, I may be off here, so feel free to correct me. But coming back the other way, if you're coasting and that's spinning down, you can send power back to the battery, sort of doing the same thing in reverse. And I think the inverter is still managing that in that scenario, right? Absolutely. Okay. You're absolutely correct. So that's the major benefit, or one of the major yeah. benefits of an EV is that you can recoup some of that energy from the wheels mm -hmm. and send it back to the battery, and it absolutely comes through the inverter again and charges the battery back. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, and I guess just to, for those who maybe haven't torn down an EV, any, any drive unit that, that we've seen on the floor, right? They're always going to have an inverter. Ben mentioned three in one. Um, that is sort of become what is most common. I feel like uh, that we see out there um, in terms of having the inverter, the gearbox and the e-motor e-machine all sort of as one, neatly bundled unit, but that sort of wasn't necessarily the case uh, in the earlier days. Uh, are you? Would you guys say that in your product portfolio is three-in-one pretty standard now, or do some folks, is there still a reason to do, uh, I guess it'd be a two-in-one um, with like a separate inverter? 
Yeah, so GCAN Automotive is happy to sell full three-in-one systems sure, uh, sure. as well as individual components. So there are different situations that our, our customers ask for. In the end, it's coming into a three-in-one unit. Uh, so it means there's more integration now than there was in the past. Sure. Now, whether that uh, gearbox is being supplied by one supplier mm-hmm. versus the inverter coming somewhere else and the traction motor coming from a third place, mm-hmm. that's kind of immaterial. But those systems, those subsystems need to work together to combine them sure. into an integrated unit. So you guys do, that is a scenario then that you encounter where maybe maybe clients would want to use just a portion of your offering and, and pair that with something that either they developed internally or might even come from another tier one or tier two altogether. Could be the case, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Happens quite often. Yeah, So. okay. Well, yeah, and as we think about like, especially your guys' driveline components, you know, the shafts are always mating up to like something that's driving it that probably came from someone else and wheels and hubs that are probably from someone else. So you guys are like awesome intermediaries for the transfer of power, I feel like. To, to. Yeah, you know, we're we're one of the only companies that can transfer torque or generate torque in the e-drive unit uh, and transfer it out to the wheels through the drive line. Yeah. So we have that full integration capability in the portfolio. Sure. And that helps a lot with uh, management of noise, vibration, harshness. Mm-hmm. If you're owning different parts of the system, you know how they join together and, and what the levers are that you can pull to have the best integrated system there. Sure, sure. And I know you mentioned, so the ECUs, electronic control units that would be driving the all-wheel drive systems. I know, you know, in, in ICE vehicles, primarily, you're then talking about having either transfer cases or PTUs or, you know, disconnect systems, clutches, differentials, all that good noise. Um, I guess, so historically, that probably, I know that was, I was looking at some of the roles you held, it seemed like you spent some time there, and have now gotten to where, obviously, in the electric space, or e-drive space, you're doing a lot there. What was, um, I guess, it would seem that, like, the controls of that all-wheel drive stuff, you probably had some important learnings there that kind of led to to where you're currently at. Maybe you could talk about um, how that sort of transition took place, and maybe why that was good or bad, or what that meant for you. Yeah, I think there's there's kind of a beautiful story at GCAN Automotive. You know, you you think about starting in the 1950s and 60s with side shafts in constant velocity joints. Mm-hmm. That's a very mechanical component yeah. that is based on transferring torque. Yep. But over the years, you you learn about noise, vibration, harshness management. You learn about uh, torque transfer through those devices that makes it kind of a natural transition then into an all-wheel drive space Mm -hmm. where you're responsible for managing torque. So you're not generating torque, but you're managing the torque to each of the wheels, right? So you have torque delivery with the side shafts and you have torque management with all-wheel drive. And in all-wheel drive, you get a lot closer to the vehicle dynamics, to the vehicle integration with the eventual customer with mm-hmm. the OEM. And you're you're doing a full mechatronic system sure. at that point. Sure. So you're you're managing things like functional safety, uh, like cybersecurity for your units. Uh, <clears throat> so it it's really a transformation of the company uh, to be able to manage a complex mechatronic product that is uh, responsible for lateral dynamics in the vehicle. Sure. And that is very easily translatable then to e-drive systems. You're taking a differential from an all-wheel drive system. You also have a differential in every e-drive system. Sure, sure. Right? These same sort of lateral dynamics play that happens in all-wheel drive, you also see these in e-drive systems. The software foundation that you've built with all-wheel drive translates there as well. The electronics platform, although it's low voltage on the all-wheel drive side, that's really just a control board inside the inverter. So there's a lot of nice play there that allows you to take the progression from step to step. Sure. 
So you guys had a running start. It was like a, it was a match made in heaven. It was perfect. A running start starting in, in the 1950s. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's neat. No, and I saw too. So, you know, you talk about the portions of the vehicle that covers, obviously, you know, you think GKN, you think driveline and sort of powertrain and, and the transfer of power. I know it looked like you'd spent some time also in like braking hardware and chassis dynamic hardware. So again, as you think about continuing out to the wheels and managing torque, um, it seems like you've had a lot of experience both in and outside of GKN even that kind of equipped you for, <laughs> for managing that scenario. Yeah, that, that's right. So the controlled brakes experience was my, my first position out mm -hmm. of university. Okay. And that... That was with a, a former Delphi company mm -hmm. that was transitioned to BWI Group, um, and it was a the perfect situation for me as a young engineer that was eager to learn about the industry and the development of automotive electronics. Mm -hmm. And here you had a place where you had a lot of former Delphi guys that were extremely experienced, had built some of the first systems in vehicles, and were just very eager on their side to pass down this knowledge. Sure. So it was the perfect pairing there of allowing myself to develop and they were able to pass down the knowledge. I'm forever grateful that that was my, my first position. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, and I'm always curious too, like, you know, you look at where you're at today, you're a leader, a leader of teams in a pretty critical area of, of, current vehicles and the next generation of vehicles, I guess if you looked back at like eight or 10 year old Ben, and you looked ahead at your future, is this, is this where you saw yourself? Was this, would, would Ben be surprised or would you have been like, oh yeah, man, that's going to be me? I would say I had no idea. <laughs> uh, you know, when, when I was eight or 10 years old, I was much more interested in, in sports and uh, the physical play. Sure. Uh, I, I don't think I had the, the traditional engineer's mind okay. growing up where it was obvious that I was going to be an engineer. You know, I was, I was good in school, uh, strong in math and sciences. And I think you, you get some external pushes from sure. your, your peers to say you should be an engineer. <laughs> and I probably didn't even know what an engineer was sure. at that point in time. Sure. Uh, but that's what I stepped into yeah. and it was more of a grown love uh, over an over time, taste, an huh? acquired taste. That's right. <laughs> Rather than uh, you know something that I was born to do. Sure, sure. Well, you mentioned you were big into sports. What was what was your uh, your childhood favorite sports, man? What did you do? Oh yeah. Well, I have uh, two older brothers that I was always trying to catch up with. So sure. you know, we were always playing basketball, football, sure. baseball together. Um, yeah. So a lot of experience uh in, in my childhood I, I grew up kind of in the country mm -hmm. so sports is is where you, you dove do. in yeah, yeah that yeah. that's what you do so i'm with you too i uh yeah growing up my parents like we had, we were fortunate enough to have like some we kind of lived in the woods like almost in the middle of nowhere <laughs> to some extent and it's fun you get to yeah it's nice to have space to get out and do stuff and i i feel like too even though i would say i wasn't ever like dead set necessarily on becoming an engineer just like having some space to be able to rip things apart and look at things kind of helps stem some of that curiosity for developing things. So I think I saw too, though, on the topic of athletics, and this may be a tangent, but did I see that you used to play some ultimate Frisbee in your day? You're right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I played ultimate Frisbee in college. Okay. Yes. Okay. So it's so, a, a club team. So, okay. uh, you know, we, we, we took ourselves uh, seriously in, in some ways with the athletics, but, it was also just a, a great group of people. Sure. Uh, a ton of engineers, for some reason, also play ultimate. So it was a good community there. <laughs> so that involves uh, a lot of travel on uh, weekends in college okay. to yeah, different places around the country to play in, in tournaments against other universities. Sure. Uh, yeah, so it was competitive, but also very fun. My, uh, I, I, Ultimate's a ton of fun, man. I feel like if any, if anyone's not spent an ample amount of time around a frisbee it's it's because right it's competitive but it's not too serious right and the uh i think my my little brother was on an ultimate team he went to hope college um so on the west side of the state i don't know if you guys ever played them or whatever but yeah he was always going to the tournaments and stuff i i 
I like throwing. I was never probably very good at it, but do you do you still huck, man? Are you still out there spinning discs? Yeah, well, uh, I have uh, three small children at okay. home, so you know the days of competitive ultimate are <laughs> are over. I think, but I'm eager to get my four year old out there sure. with with the disc and sure. yeah, teach him some things. That's got to be, you know, I guess yeah. People think about learning to throw a baseball or a football, frisbees. I don't know. Is that for a little kid, do you think that'd be harder? I don't know. The, the forehand or the, what is it when you throw yeah, the, like that? the forehand. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. That's that's how you that's separate the, the men from the boys. And the, yeah, you <laughs> have to start them young. I think that's the key. <laughs> there you go. Awesome, man. Well, do, I, do, do you need Frisbee golf? I know that my, uh, I have some relatives that are really into that. It seems like that'd be a natural transition. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's the more uh, dad-friendly sure, sport, sure. I would say. So. Yeah, awesome. we get out from time to time and do that as well. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, I know we're kind of jumping all around here, but want to circle back a little bit to so your company, GKN. I think I, I was looking, um, I'm always interested when there's an acronym, like what does that acronym stand for? And it was, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was what? Guest, Keen, and Nettlefolds. You're correct. Going all the way back to like the mid-1700s or something like that, right? Yes, right. That is a That is some storied history, man. Yeah, so so GCAN has quite an extensive heritage. So started out as an ironworks company okay. in England, mm-hmm. uh, founded by uh, Gaskin and Nettlefold. Yeah. and household name. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And now it's 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 really humbling to think that the company has been around longer than the United States yeah. of America has sure. been formed. So yeah, it's. It's pretty incredible to think like that. Yeah. And and I think, you know, obviously maybe the nature of what we do, or at least personally what I've been exposed to, the automotive side and maybe a little bit of the powdered metallurgy, like I've seen your guys' products. But I think company-wide, you guys are players in like aerospace and some other industries as well, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> about four years ago, mm-hmm. I think it was four years ago, maybe five now, uh, GCAN as a parent company, was acquired by a different company, Melrose. Okay. Melrose Industries and a takeover. And with that takeover, we were pulled into Melrose Industries business, and okay. they split up GCAN Automotive from GCAN Center Metals from GCAN Aerospace. Sure. So they held on to GCAN Aerospace. Okay. But... Recently, GCAN Automotive and GCAN Center Metals were put back on the public market under a parent company called Dowlay mm-hmm. and were now independent and you know, public again. Okay. Yeah. So it was like a, I was reading something about that. It was like a demerger and it was like mm-hmm. real recent, like within the last couple of weeks or yeah, something. Yeah, just two right? weeks ago, I think. Okay. And yeah, I was looking, Dowlay had something to do with like, like a throwback to like the Dowlay Ironworks and like where they licensed the Bessemer process from, right? Yeah, you've done your homework. <laughs> wow, well done. I, know, I didn't know good. there would be a history quiz on this, but no, no it's great. fun, man. It, it, it is. It's, I feel like not every company has that rich of like a heritage and that cool stuff. So it was out there. I was like, I was interested, so I kept digging. You Absolutely. Know? No, I'm I'm into it as well. It's it's fascinating. <laughs> Gotcha. So then in the company then is headquartered, I guess, globally, is it in the UK or? It is. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever been over there and visited? I've been to our advanced technology center in England, but not to the headquarters itself. Okay. So we have an advanced development center near Oxford in a city called Abingdon, where they're looking at the technology, you know, five, 10 years down the road. Got it. Um, Yeah. So they're doing some fun, interesting things there as well. Very cool. The, uh, and that's got to be interesting. I mean, I imagine, obviously, you know, we live in a global economy. Products that OEMs are developing are going all over the place. I imagine the parts that are on them as well for you guys. So you're probably managing development and teams of folks from all over the world. Uh, yeah, what I'm trying to think, like what, what time zones are you typically balancing in your, in your daily foray? Yeah, uh, so... I'm I'm typically an early morning guy. Okay. So a lot of business is done with Europe, okay. uh, but also with Asia. 
Okay. So th- there's no perfect time to do it. Yeah. Uh, but we have an electrical hardware team in India, so I need to interface with them uh, from day to day. So they're ten and a half hours ahead. It means some early mornings. Yeah. But. Yeah, I trying to balance between. I remember one time I was trying to do it with Vietnam and the UK and here, and it was just like there was only like one hour in the day. I felt like that was some sort of tenable thing. For, for yeah, everyone. right. So it's like six a.m. Something like that. Brutal, brutal. Yeah. Well, if you're so, yeah, you've got young kids. I was never a morning person, but I'm sort of begrudgingly becoming one. I feel like because you're forced to when you have little kiddos. So hopefully they helped help make that transition smoother for you. <laughs> well, yeah, that and the uh, the working from home possibilities that opened up after the pandemic, sure, right? So, sure. you know, I can roll out of bed and 15 minutes later be on a phone call with someone in, in Europe or in yeah. India. So that's the benefit there. There you go. So that's how you manage it. Awesome, man. Very, very cool. So I guess one thing I was wondering about, so you kind of started off in break, um, system like management the controls behind that looked like you did some stuff in chassis and then obviously at some point you made a transition to gkn and sort of got on this path towards you know being in a crucial part of the hardware for you know the things that make evs go right was that a was that a uh like a an intentional decision you made like hey this is where i think the industry is going i want to make that move and be in that space or sort of what, what what transpired to get you from sort of where you started out to to where you are? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, probably I was very young and naive at the time. Sure. Uh, I wish I could say it was intentional, uh, <laughs> but, you know, things just kind of work out sure. in life a certain way. Um, I was I was ready to take a step in my career to to branch out to a different product and to build something to in, in controlled breaks we're we're making great products but it was it was very mature and breaking is very commoditized sure. so i was looking to step into a space that i could build something new with with the team and and make more of an impact sure. and that's what what you can off Gcan automotive offered to me uh, it allowed me to go through this transformation of the business along with them from a purely mechanical company to one that is driven by systems engineering principles and one that values software and electronics just as much as the gearboxes and the side shafts that we're we're putting out there so from that perspective just building products along with an organization that was open-minded to change uh, that that was the perfect match for yeah. me. That's neat, man. It's uh, and yeah, you know, I, I laugh. I think about my first exposure to some of GKN's products would have been, yeah, like on a half shaft. I think that one of the neater innovations I saw it was like the the face spline hub where it, it like goes to the hub and you don't have a pin that's going through. And I think it was a BMW we were tearing down and it was, we were looking specifically at like weight optimization opportunities and that was it. It was like you hacked off a bunch of material you had a single fastener. It was easier to assemble. Um, it would probably cost more. So that was maybe the trade off. That's probably why it was on a BMW, but I would like to have that technology on my car. I was impressed with it, but obviously that was more in the sort of mechanical realm neat to see how the portfolio is sort of expanded to have the products that like you're working on. That's, that's very cool. I know that was like an innovation at its time. Mm-hmm. And I th- looked up a bunch of stuff about it. I would imagine there's probably similar innovations that you and your team have developed that you're proud of. What is kind of, I guess in the products that you've worked on or managed or led the development of what are maybe some of the, are there any, sort of innovative developments that come to mind as things that like maybe the casual observer wouldn't, wouldn't notice, but just neat things that you were proud of that you and your team brought into an inverter or into a, an all wheel drive control system. Sure. Yeah. We're doing a lot of great work there. Uh, so I think in the industry right now, uh, as it should be, there's a major focus on efficiency. So that's a key focus for us internally as well. So, making the units smaller, making the uh, the runs of the, the bus bars that are delivering the power as, as small as possible, making sure. sure the packaging is 
is compact. Uh, having efficient power stages to deliver the power from from the vehicle battery to the traction motor. You know, that is what efficiency is, right? Sure. The, the better you can deliver the energy from the battery to the traction motor means that you're a more efficient uh, component. So that's where our focus is. I think we've, we've done some really excellent work there mm-hmm. uh, with, with cooling of power modules, with our packaging to reduce mass. Uh, yeah, a lot of things we're really proud of there. Yeah, it's neat. It's, and it's, it's an interesting time in the sense that, you know, we, I think in the last year, at least 20 different EVs from all different OEMs have come through and, you know, you look at them, whether we're tearing them down or putting them on the hoist and like the industry hasn't really totally converged on like what is the most efficient, right? People are still doing things different ways. Their supplier partners, tier ones, such as GCAN, such as yourself are doing things different ways. And it's, it's exciting to be at a moment where everyone's still trying to figure it out and you can experiment in some of those ways and, and, and see, I mean, I imagine my feeling is things will probably continue to converge and we'll get like a rough idea of maybe the more efficient ways to do things. And I guess ultimately people come to us asking about some of that and trying to see like, Hey, where are the efficiencies here? But, uh, yeah, it's, um, I guess like, yeah. So like the move to, I know we were talking about, and we should, we should bring this up the Maki which we've torn down. You guys had some content on that. I think the front drive unit, right? Yes. And I right. believe, I believe we mistakenly uh, called that a magna unit. So I would like to apologize. I'll fall. I don't even remember who said it, but um, it was Sandy. Okay, it was Sandy. Well, Sandy, darn it. Uh, we'll have to we'll have to talk to him about that one. But yeah. tell us about that drive unit, maybe uh, if you're familiar with it. I know we saw it out on the floor before we walked in here. Um, was yeah. that something that your team touched? Yeah. So th- that that video was uh, was excellent. You know, Sandy was kind of swooning about the the front unit and the Maki, and he says, "Yeah, this this gearbox here is from Magna." <laughs> and you guys uh, are like, "No." Uh, yeah, I, I think there was a, a mob assembling, you know, up <laughs> up the road, ready to to march down here, and uh, uh. and have some bones to pick, but no, I, I understand in, in your work, it's impossible to understand, you know, the full uh, supply base there, but sure. yeah, no, that's, that's a great unit that we have uh, in the, the Maki. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, a two in one system for GKN. So uh, what that means is we didn't supply the inverter. Okay. Uh, we were responsible for the, the gearbox and traction motor okay. and delivering that with an interface to Ford, that they could make the inverter. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, well, you're kind to give us some dispensation. It's still a pretty big whiff. I apologize for that. I feel bad. Now I'm going to go, I'm going to go rewatch that video and uh, maybe we'll amend it in some fashion, but uh, it's not, it's not the first time that's happened. Probably won't be the last, but we do try and be as accurate as possible. So thank you for setting the record straight on that one. Appreciate it. And yet, you know, it's interesting with Ford too, as I think about like, so we looked at the Maki. Obviously, that was sort of their first recent meaningful jump into the electrified space with an, with a full BEV. Um, I think they did a great job with that vehicle, and I, you're seeing more and more on the road. Uh, but in that one specifically, their drive units, their EDMs, they had a three and one in the rear and a two and one in the front, and they were from different suppliers. It's interesting to see as we compare that to like the F one hundred and fifty Lightning. Ford has taken on the responsibility of doing their e-motors in-house now. Um, I think they're still, so I think they are doing two, and maybe you know more about this than I, and if you can speak about it, feel free, but uh, I, they're still purchasing their inverters from what, from what we see, but I think that the other two functions maybe they're taking responsibility for. Mm-hmm. Conventionally speaking, when we think about, you know, the days of your ICE vehicles, you know, the conventional OEM responsibilities were your body in white, and your powertrain. And certainly there's some exceptions, but by and large, those were the two big ones. Um, you know, in the early days of EVs, it made sense for people speed the market and everything to kind of maybe buy more than, than build. Do you guys, do you guys have a sense? Like, is there a concern that moving forward, OEMs are going to try and claw more of that content back to themselves to 
try and, you know, be more competitive or, or do you feel like you guys have a pretty stable, maybe you can do it better than the OEMs. I don't know. Maybe that, I guess maybe that's the pitch if you have more experience in that, but is that, do you think we're seeing a bow wave of appetite for EDMs being done externally, or do you think that'll be a pretty sustained appetite? Yeah. And I, it's a tough question. No, it, no it's an excellent question. Yeah. I wish I knew the answer. <laughs> but, uh, so I think it varies a lot right now, even between OEMs. So some of our customers are doing all of their systems in-house. Some of them are doing their full system externally. Some want components uh, with their own system responsibility. It varies a lot. Mm -hmm. I think if we look at the past with OEM development of whatever component, pick a component, they want to build that competency in-house for themselves so they can see eye to eye with the, the supply base. Sure. So it's important for them to do at least some systems, sure. it seems, so they can manage a supply base intelligently. Okay. I think there are, there are a couple of factors that will affect it going forward. One, it is clearly the engineering focus right now for our customers that, you know, this is the transformation space from ice to battery electric and, and PHEVs. Sure. Uh, will that continue in the future? I don't know. Uh, will it, will they turn their focus toward autonomous driving sure. uh, and, you know, turn their workforce in turn in that direction? Sure. And the other aspect would be, are they getting any competitive advantage from doing it in-house? Are they able to differentiate sure, sure. with doing that work in-house? I think that's also an unanswered question. You know, sure. the, the generation of EVs that we're in right now have focused on longitudinal dynamics rather than lateral dynamics. Yeah. I see that as an opportunity for a company like GCAN Automotive that has so much experience with lateral dynamics that can make your driving experience unique, right? We have the, the all-wheel drive components that can be building blocks for an EDU and help our customers then get a different driving experience out of it. So I don't know the full answer, sure. uh, but I, 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 I do see that next generation of EDUs being built with some further differentiation coming sure. in the way of, of lateral dynamics. Sure. And I think they'll be reaching out to the supply base for support in that. Sure. Uh, does that mean full systems or does it mean components? I don't know, but we're, we're experienced and prepared to do both. Yeah. Fascinating. And I know, yeah. And it's interesting too, you know, you think about, yeah, what's, are they differentiating with it? What are the important factors to the end user? I think we're still in this space where efficiency is paramount because people are thinking about range and how far the vehicle goes given a certain battery size. And as I think about driveline, some of the things, driveline systems and components that we've seen starting to talk about like disconnects. I know we had a, a Rivian out there. Um, they had a set of electromechanical disconnects that allow them to decouple. They had four motors, which is excessive, right? <laughs> but they had an ability to decouple the rear drive unit, essentially both of the single drive unit that had two motors. Um, they could decouple the thing. And I, and I know we've heard, you know, well, historically, um, units to decouple the powertrain we're certainly in ICE vehicles, again, for the means of efficiency, not just having all that rolling resistance on your drivetrain. Do you guys, in terms of other portions of the driveline, do you guys have any like um, disconnects, decouplers, clutches? Is that kind of your wheelhouse as well? It's a big part of our business. Okay. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Disconnects in ICE vehicles. So if you have an all-wheel drive system in the rear of the vehicle, uh, you have to have a prop shaft mm -hmm. from the front of the vehicle to the rear of the vehicle to send that torque to the rear wheels, yep. right? And if you're in a situation where you don't need all-wheel drive for the vehicle, it's better for fuel economy mm -hmm. to disconnect the all-wheel drive system from the driveline. Uh, so that's a big part of our portfolio. Uh, we also are big into secondary 
drive axles for e-drive systems. So okay. by that, I mean, it's, it's not the primary driver of the vehicle, but a way to accomplish all wheel drive in electric vehicles is to put an electric drive unit in the front an electric drive unit in the rear. Yep. So if you're the secondary drive unit, you're oftentimes not having the, the same power to drive the vehicle. You're oftentimes not asked to supply power to the vehicle. Sure. And if it's a permanent magnet motor, it's providing drag on the yeah. vehicle, um, reducing efficiency. Yeah. So in our electric drive units also, it's extremely important that we have a disconnect that sure. Sure. offers as high efficiency as possible. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, and I guess it, that that's an interesting topic too. Conventionally, yeah, if you've got an ICE engine, that's redundant. Uh, if you've got an ICE and you're trying to transmit power to the rear conventionally, you've got the um, you know prop shafts that are sending that with differentials. I do think, I remember the first time I saw like a P4 setup where it was an ICE engine up front. I did it again uh, with an electric drive unit in the rear. So there wasn't the shafts. I think it was like a Volvo XC90. I mm-hmm. saw that on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you guys have some of those systems out there in the wild as well, right? Actually, uh, on the XC90. Okay, is that, yeah. I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, and there's, a, there's a disconnect unit okay. in there uh, to yeah, decouple that permanent magnet. Okay, when it's not motor. asking for, okay. Because exactly. it's permanent magnet. If it was an induction motor, maybe it wouldn't be necessary, but then you're Correct. dealing with an induction motor. So interesting. Fascinating. The um so man, yeah, I think about, you know, we talked about sort of the state of flux of the industry and things moving around and and certainly there's a lot of momentum, I would say, EVs are having their day, but at the same time, talking about things not converging, like I think about the last three EVs that we've torn down. We've got an, a Hyundai Ioniq 5 out there. We had a Lucid Air in there. We had a Hummer. So those would all be 800 or 900 volt cars, mm-hmm. which early days, everything was 400 volts, more or less nominal ranges. I was really curious. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what high voltage uh, EVs are going to be at. I think Tesla for a long time was saying, nope, no plans to go to 800 volts, but then. Now the Tesla Semi is at 1,000 volts, and I think, I think they're talking about going to higher voltages. They are on the low-voltage side. I guess I'd be curious, uh, as someone who, from the inverter side, you're having to take power from the battery, so this is probably core to you. What's kind of your thought on the whole um, maybe move to higher voltages? Do you think 800 volts is it? Do you think they're going to go to higher voltages? And, and how does that impact like an inverter, how you guys design that? What, what components does that change in, in a piece of hardware like that? Sure. <clears throat> yeah. So first, you know, we should level set for the audience why we should go from 400 volts yeah, to 800 volts please. in yeah. the first place. Uh, and that is really all about efficiency. Mm-hmm. In, in my view, some would also say it's a, a chase of, of power, uh, but Power losses in electric systems are due to current. Mm-hmm. So current that is not driving the, the traction motor or current that is is through the system is creating loss through heat. Through heat that you have right. to then manage with a thermal system, thermal management Exactly. System. Yeah. So power is voltage multiplied by current. Mm-hmm. So... If you have a higher voltage, it means you can have a reduced current with the same power output. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the case for going to 800 volts, sure. right? So the benefits of that are if you have the same power system that you can reduce the size of your components. Yep, down gauge wires, reduce size. Exactly. So, and even the components though you're saying, I guess that makes sense. So, so inside the inverter, it means that the bus bars can be reduced in diameter or yeah, in cross-sectionally. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah. However you want to measure it. Sure. Uh, the, the power module can be reduced in size as well. So you have less power losses there. Uh, in the actual power switching components within there, which are like the highest dollar item probably in an inverter, right? Absolutely. The highest dollar item, you know, usually between 40 to 50% of the, yeah. the cost okay. of the inverter. Uh, 
so you can downsize those components as well. The whole package can shrink. Uh, so you, you get some really major efficiency benefits by going to a higher voltage level. Sure. Sorry, I hit the table. <laughs> I was just so excited about the efficiencies, man. Yeah. But yeah. So, I mean, so there's a compelling case and obviously we're seeing folks do it. Do you get the sense that like in your world, does that seem like a no brainer? Is that like, yeah, this is where we're going. So 800 volts for sure. Okay. Uh, I, at least in in my view that that is going to be the the world going forward sure can we go beyond that is is the question mm -hmm. at hand so i don't know the answer to that i i think it's worth exploring though so when when you have high voltage you have to respect some design rules regarding you know clearance and and creepage to keep components spaced enough that you're not going to have some voltage jump that shorts out the system. Sure, right? welds things shut or whatever, yeah. So that's the challenge with going to higher voltage is you need to respect these different constraints of the system. Mm -hmm. So increasing the voltage further means that you need to respect those clearance and creepage rules even further. So there's a limit there that you reach where it's no longer worth it to increase voltage because of the, the rules that you have to respect are prohibiting some of the advantages that you would get. Sure, sure. Interesting. And then I know b similar topic, right? But the in terms of low voltage architecture, I know, and again, I hate to keep bringing up Tesla, but Splash is in the news lately where they said that Cybertruck and moving forward, they're going to be using 48-volt architecture, which we know... Uh, for their low volt side of things. We know Volkswagen, many other companies have been playing around with that for years. We know there's mild hybrid systems that RAM with the eTorque setup has a 48 volt battery um, that's part of its driveline. But do you, I mean, I know some of, all of your guys' systems have a low voltage component to them as well. Um, what's your thoughts on the whole 12 to 48 volt topic? And do you see that? in the same way that you see the 800 volt discussion in terms of it being a maybe an obvious choice or an inevitable thing? Or do you think I, it's been it? The, the reason I ask on that one, it's been being talked about for so long, but mm. it's like we've not gotten off a of square one. So it makes me curious. <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know. I'd be curious on your opinion. on that. Yeah. So I see that one in a bit of a different way. Okay. Uh, personally, now okay. I, I know that I'm there's some, some disagreement out there. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> we, we talked about the step from 400 to 800 mm -hmm. and the gains in efficiency there by reducing current. Mm -hmm. You could apply that same principle from 12 to 48 and say you're also going to reduce current. But the low voltage systems in your vehicle that are drawing sizable amounts of current are... Yeah, you have some some pumps, maybe Fans, the yeah, yeah. controlled brakes, that sort of thing. But the amount of systems where you would see a benefit in the current reduction, I think, is is quite reduced. Sure. If you look at the inverter itself, so you mentioned that it has a low voltage component as well. Mm -hmm. We would call that the control board. Sure, sure. Right. So uh, it's receiving twelve, maybe upcoming 48 <laughs> volts into it. Sure. It's not a big power draw sure. into that component. Uh, that area of the inverter is what is controlling your disconnect uh, devices by driving a motor or some of the other lateral dynamics capabilities that you might add in there uh, on the all-wheel drive side, driving some motors. So you get some benefits in current reduction there. But overall, that portion of the inverter is not a high current drawing device. So the efficiency benefits that you would be getting there are much reduced. Sure, sure. Then if you look at the architecture of the board itself and the voltage that those subcomponents want, and really what the whole industry of subcomponents has been building for years and years yeah. and years has been based off of this 12 volt architecture. Yeah. So. For me, that's a huge investment sure. to go to 48 volts for something that I don't think you're going to see a ton of benefits in, sure. certainly for every system. So it's a, it's 
it's an open question out there. I'm, I'm really excited to see what happens with, with Tesla. You know, everyone says that, uh, you know, what they're doing is stupid and, uh, they, they pull it off, you know, sure, so the, sure. they're, they're transforming the industry. So I'm excited to see what comes out of that. So we're keeping a close eye on that for, for sure. sure. Um, but, for now, yeah, I, I like my my twelve volts on <laughs> on the on the low voltage side of the inverter. That's fair. That's fair. Awesome, man. And just thinking about some of the other systems that are like maybe in a state of transformation, and specifically thinking about your wheelhouse and things you've worked on. I was curious. Um, there's a, there's several things actually. I was really excited to talk to you, but like um, I know another area where historically like in the driveline, in, in automatic transmissions, you had a torque converter that would sort of idle forward if you left it in neutral. So you had a park lock system, a parking pawl, something that mechanically would lock in and stop the vehicle from moving. We've seen in the advent of electronic park brake systems, right, people now have a means of electronically through another mechatronic element holding the vehicle stationary. And we've seen some OEMs use that opportunity to take a park lock system out of their e-drive unit on BEVs. I think Tesla was the first place we saw it, but Volkswagen followed suit. Polestar does that. Um, I've seen, yeah, Rivian didn't have any in their drive in their drive units as well. Curious what your, t especially since you spent some time in controlled braking systems too, like what is, what is your thoughts on that? And I guess, I don't know, do, would GKN support, do you have products that do and don't have a parking pole? Is that purely up to the OEM or is there like a, I guess the verdict's still out. I've talked to people and there's no clear guidance regulatorily. Um, just would love as an expert like yourself, I'd love to know what you think about the topic. Yeah. So it's an open question, I, I think clearly in the industry. So we have uh, customers that they want to have this conversation in the quotation phase about the system, whether it should have a, a park lock system yeah. or if they're they're going to an electronic park brake. Um, I think it's a functional safety question. It's, sure. it's one that all of our customers are trying to answer for themselves and we're acting as a, a consultant sure, there. Sure. Uh, so we're happy to support it either way. It, it's, a, it's an issue for the customer uh, to resolve but we don't see a clear resolution sure. of, of the question certainly from the cost driver standpoint you could make a good argument that the trend will continue for elimination of, sure. of park lock systems but uh, maybe because of functional safety concerns or government regulations sure that won't be the case yeah I, that's a very diplomatic answer, man. I appreciate it. I no, it's good. I mean, yeah. you, you have to, you have to, you have to have an approach like that, yeah. Because if you put yourself out there, and things change, I, I, that's been the most interesting thing for me. Is as, people have asked us about this, right? And as you look into it and you read some of the guidance, whether it's EU standards or or FMVSS stuff, a lot of it's describing like mechanical systems that aren't even in. EVs, right? It's t it's talking about automatic transmissions and it's talking about ignition systems that have hard keys. And it's like, we got to update this stuff, but I get the sense that they're kind of hesitating because they're just like, it's a big deal, right? There are real implications. People are going to take action based on that update and guidance. And it's just kind of a gray area. You and know? the industry is moving really fast yeah. right now yeah. too, right? So if they make a, a new standard right now, is it going to hold for the yeah. next... 10 years, 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the interesting thing is, uh, you know, ICE vehicles have been developed for 100 years. Yeah. And we've been developing battery electric vehicles for the past 20 and only probably for the past five or so with some real engineering weight sure, that's sure. going into it. So yeah. we're early on in our stages there of what systems we're, we're going to see going forward. So yeah, it's really an exciting time. Yeah, for sure. You know, and even I think about um, like electrified elements that are necessary, not aren't necessarily even exclusive to BEVs, but things like 
steer by wire, brake by wire, um, electronic brake boosters, which again, I feel like would have been in your sphere of influence at one point. I know that I saw um, Toyota's supposed to be debuting a full steer by wire system on, I think it's the Lexus RZ450 or something like that in the next year or something. I, I think it's, we're, we're close. Um, I know Sandy's talked about that for a long time. He thinks, oh yeah, we should definitely do it. So no mechanical linkage between the steering wheel and the rack, continuously variable ratio, no hand over hand. So you can go to full lock, you know, and they're just adjusting it. Uh, what's your take on steer by wire systems? Oh, wow. Yeah, we're, we're really outside my realm now. But <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's fine. If you, if, yeah. You don't have to go uh, so I, I think the, the interesting thing there is without hand over hand, your, your steering wheel can be a different shape, right? Yeah. 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 So, uh, it speaks to, speaks to some different driver comfort and the way that the, the passenger cabin even looks and feels to the driver sure, sure. opens up some possibilities there that are exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I think their one has a yoke mm, somewhat like yeah. the, the one on the Model S Plaid, but the Model S Plaid was still a sort of a conventional, like had eye shafts and linkage. So, People oh, right. griped about going hand over hand with that yoke. So that was pretty polarizing, but interesting, interesting stuff, man. Well, yeah. And sorry, I, yeah, you were, so at BWI, there was some, some in chassis. I wasn't sure if you ever got into steering or anything. Is that, does GKN have any, do they get into like steering portions of the vehicle at all? Or is that? No, no. GKN Automotive is you know, purely in, in the drive line. Okay. And got it. You drive systems. Got it. Got it. Awesome, man. So I know, right, and you said we're having this moment. EVs, like we've seen, I think in 2021, it was 6% of new vehicle sales. And that curve, once it got past that 5%, we've seen it kind of continuing to start to accelerate. And that's as a percentage of new vehicles sold, though. So not all vehicles on the road, but there's it's ramping up. Um, but obviously, there's still some hesitance, there's still some barriers. I'm always interested in talking to like folks like yourself who's who are deeply into this space. Like what do you see as the biggest challenges, I guess, that are out there still for mass EV adoption? What are the biggest hurdles that you perceive to be things that we need to address? Sure. Yeah. So I can tell you a personal story about my my own journey toward acceptance there. And sure. it it comes around sustainability. So I think that the industry is is not very good at promoting the sustainable uh, appeal of, of EVs. There are some convoluted numbers where you, you can cherry pick a bit to make a case for ICE vehicles versus BEVs. Sure. When it comes to carbon emissions, right? So Personally, I, I wanted to be convinced on a personal level. Sure. So I looked at some data from the U.S. government, from the French government, about carbon emissions from the production of energy through different sources, sure. from coal, from uh, natural gas, from solar, wind, nuclear, these types of things. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. government gives a mix of carbon emissions based on the different energy sources mm -hmm. that they have. And it's about 385 grams per kilowatt hour, okay. somewhere in that range. I built a little tool for myself nice. uh, to <clears throat> compare the carbon emissions per mile of an ICE vehicle versus a battery electric vehicle mm -hmm. based on kind of best case efficiency sure. and a worst case efficiency in terms of BEVs. To see if, you know, that energy generation from that 385 grams per kilowatt hour mm -hmm. is approaching the level of an ICE vehicle yeah. that has moderate fuel efficiency, sure. so 30 miles per gallon, sure, something sure. like this. And what I saw is even a, a terrible efficiency EV by our current standards uh, has some modest benefits in terms of carbon emissions against an ICE vehicle. Sure. And that's largely due to the efficiency of the drive systems themselves. Yeah. You know, the ICE vehicles having 30, 40, 30, 40 yeah. yeah, 
percent efficiency, and electric drive systems, you know, approaching eighty, right around there. Yeah. So, <clears throat> for me, that's a very convincing story that battery electric vehicles are the key or a key mm -hmm. for a more sustainable world, and that is just considering the current split of energy production in the U.S., sure. given the amount of coal production that we still have, given yeah. the amount of uh, natural gas energy production that we still have. Yeah. So the but, more that you go into nuclear and wind and yeah. solar, the benefit just gets greater and greater and greater. And then on the vehicle side, efficiency just keeps going up and up and up and up and up. Yeah. So <clears throat> that case combined you have a vastly better product when it turn when it comes to sustainability, sure. uh, and I wish that that was a more clear case yeah. for consumers out there to see. So, well, yeah, if there's policymakers or marketing teams listening, Ben just gave some free advice here. That's solid, man. I I think you're absolutely right. I I think I. Yeah, if you don't look upstream to where the power that you're putting into the vehicles are to try and assess what that is doing, you're sort of only looking at a small portion of the picture. And it's funny, I heard you, like, my perception of nuclear changed a lot when I actually started caring and looking into it. And, yeah, like, there's engineering challenges there, too. But in terms of uh, potentially, like, non-carbon emitting sources of energy um, that are particularly efficient and step functions above the capability of other things, it's like, we should at least be considering that, right? I'm fully with you. And I think it was about 20% of, I think, baseload generation in the U.S. is nuclear, which is more than I think some people think. Other countries are higher, but it's, what I was surprised to learn is it's it's only been going down, like, since, like, the 50s, 60s was when most of our existing nuclear plants came online, and they've only been getting decommissioned since then. Like, we haven't had a new nuclear build in but that could be a whole separate podcast, man. Absolutely. We could go down that rabbit yeah. hole. But uh, fascinating. Fascinating. I love the, the big picture look there. Hey, Scott. Yeah. We are approaching in an hour. Okay. And I got a couple questions for Ben. All right. So what is your daily driver? Ooh, good what is one of the favorite cars you've owned? And then what is a future EV you're looking forward to? Oh, wow. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> So my daily driver right now is a, a three series BMW station wagon. Awesome. <laughs> so, um, I, is it a diesel or a gasser? It's a gas. Okay. Yeah. It's a gas engine. So, uh, for me, that was the best mix of one fuel economy. So I, I drive quite a, a large distance for yeah. work. I have young kids, so I can get, two of them in there, uh, <laughs> along with their, their stuff. Yeah. Uh, and it's really fun to drive, has great vehicle dynamics. Um, it's probably also the best car that I've owned. I've also driven uh, a Mazda 3. I've had two Mazda 3s, actually. Um, yeah, so future, future EV, that's, that's a great question. Uh, I'm, I'm, I enjoy driving sedans, unlike uh, everyone many, else in America. Yeah, everyone <laughs> else, yeah, exactly. So I, and I actually love uh, station wagons. Yeah. So I would be looking for something similar uh, to what I have there, uh, in in EV form. Yeah, which it's not, and that's not really out there. That's the thing. Like I feel like, especially. You're a new parent. I'm a new, or you're more seasoned than I. I my oldest is too. But yeah, there's not a ton of, I would call it like really family friendly EVs out there at this point. So I still don't drive an EV partially because I just feel like there's not enough of the right ones to choose from yet. Sure. Yeah. Is your is your three series? Is it a six shift or an automatic? It's an automatic. Okay. Yeah. I'm with you. Practical. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm one of those, I, my daily has, it's a stick shift and I'm just like desperately hanging on to it because I feel like it's going to be the last manual transmission I ever have. You know? uh, I think they'll still be out there. Yeah. Yeah. There's enough enthusiasts out there. There's a, there's a market. For sure. For sure. Ben, you've been super gracious in answering a ton of questions. I, I in your opinion on this, I'd like, I seriously really value you sharing these insights. Um, 
any questions we can answer for you? Well, I want to thank you for having me on. I had a lot of fun uh, yeah, talking likewise. about this stuff with a, a fellow enthusiast. <laughs> uh, no questions, but I would be happy to have you guys out to the building and, yeah, and show you some man. things. And yeah, look forward to future relationship. Awesome, man. Well, likewise. And again, huge, huge thanks for coming out here. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Another, another podcast. Eric, you said what? This was about number 10? Yeah, about number 10. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us for the big, the big double digit breakthrough here, Ben. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Eric. <laughs> Appreciate it.